Hey, welcome to episode 63 of the Juicebox podcast. Today, I'm talking to Dana Lewis from openaps.org. You want to know if you should be listening today? Listen to this. Dana made her own artificial pancreas with things that exist in the world right now. Um, amazing. And Dana says you can do it too. This episode of the Juicebox podcast is sponsored by Insulet, makers of the Omnipod. Nothing you hear on the Juicebox podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Hello. Dana. Hey, how's it going? You have done this before. You have the most crystal clear audio of anyone I've ever spoken to. I know it's early where you are. Thank you for uh, for being amenable. Yeah, no problem. And sorry again that I totally dropped the scheduling. Um, <laughs> TM is not in my normal workflow. So I was like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll do this. And then when you sent back a message later, I was like, oh, I totally forgot. Introduce yourself. I will make some ridiculous statement. You will answer. And then by the time you know it, it'll be an hour later. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, okay. So I am Dana Lewis. I am a person living with type 1 diabetes, currently living in Seattle, originally from Alabama. And most people now know me these days as one of the creators of the first open source DIY closed loop artificial pancreases. Ah, so already, Dana, you have used a whole bunch of like acronyms and wordy things that throw me off. Your world is really interesting to me. Like, I feel like I know about it, but I know that I don't. So... Open source is the idea that you've written some code and it's available to the world. Yes, and it's the idea that the work is also open. So it's also the thinking and the reference design behind it as well. So it, so there's other people involved. If somebody has an addition or, an, or a supplement to make to it, that's cool? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And we use just this open source community mindset where people can do what's called a pull request. Um, basically, you're requesting to pull your additions or edits into the code or the documentation. And you basically get what's professionally known as peer review, but it's just, hey, look at this, make sure it makes sense. Somebody test it. Great. Okay, let's pull it in. And therefore, the code or the documentation is improved. Okay. And now your code is very specific to something and obviously why you're on the show. So when I think of in my very basic understanding of the world, when I think of an artificial pancreas, I think of an insulin pump, a continuous glucose monitor, and some code that makes those two things work in tandem in a way where you don't get too high and don't get too low with your blood sugar. And, and in my mind, maybe I'm 100% wrong, but not that the pump and, you know, and the glucose monitor aren't obviously very, very important, but it's that it's that piece in the middle. It's the software piece that makes it really an artificial pancreas. Is that, am I anywhere near right? Yeah, that's how I see it. There's obviously a scale of everything from a very simple system that just, you know, it, it corrects you when you're really high and it corrects you when you're really low. Um, and then there's everything all the way to a fully automated system where you don't do meal bolses. But the artificial pancreas that I'm usually talking about is very often referred to as a hybrid closed loop and that it does exactly what you described, but the person is still responsible for doing the main meal bolus and then the loop will pick up um, after that. Okay. And so you use this right now. You're using it this second. Yes. Yes. And so it is early where you are. Maybe you've eaten already. Maybe you haven't. But when you go to eat, you're going to count your carbs and say, this is how much insulin I should be using. And then your your code and, and these devices in tandem are then going to keep your blood sugar more stable as it wants to spike or, or drop or something like that. 
Yeah, it's basically like uh, taking a plane that's coming in for a landing. It's got a glide path. You know it's going to come down at about this rate and about this much, and eventually it's going to land very safely and smoothly. Um, same thing with the blood sugar. The algorithm actually makes this prediction. It says this is what the glide path is going to be, and if and that's based on your you doing the meal bolus. And if for some reason you fall off a cliff or you have this huge spike because, you know, diabetes, something happens, you miscounted your carbs, you delayed your bolus for whatever reason, if you start to go off that glide path, the algorithm says, huh, I think you need more insulin or less insulin. And it kicks in with those automated adjustments. And it's not different than the diabetes math you would do if you happen to look at your CGM or happen to test your you know, your finger and did all that math and said, oh gosh, I seem to be rising or I seem to be dropping much, much more quickly than I thought I would be. But the point of this is it's automated. Every five minutes, it gets a new data point, it runs the algorithm and it takes an action. And a lot of times it's much more precise and much more quicker to take action than we as a human would do. Mm -hmm. Because because by the time by the time I run through all the possibilities that might be going on, it's probably too late. By the time I think maybe I didn't use enough insulin or maybe... There wasn't. There were more carbs than I thought, or or maybe the insulin's not as potent today because it was out in the heat, or like what all the millions of things that I think of. By the time I think of them, my daughter's blood sugar is fifty points higher to begin with, and 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 so this is doing this bang really quickly. Here's here's my question. This is pretty amazing. So you're not like a, or maybe you are, but you know, there's people. You know, there's obviously this is the push, and there's a ton of companies trying to do stuff like this now. But but when I think of them, I think of companies. I think of insulin pump companies. I think of you know, sciencey guys. I don't ever think of like Dana, like, you know, Dana from Twitter. <laughs> hey, Dana, you know what Dana from Twitter is doing? Because I think of you as like the, the HCSM hashtag person on Twitter. Like that's, mm -hmm. you know, and so what, what about you allows you to say, I bet you I could write this code myself and make this work for me. <laughs> is it just because you well, watched like, too, did your mom, was your mom just way too like, supportive when you were younger? She's like, you can do anything. Dana. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really funny because I, I am the youngest of three. I have two older brothers and we are a smidge bit competitive. Um, so I very much did grow up with the, I can do anything. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter if I'm a girl or the youngest or whatever, that doesn't matter. Um, and, and in the diabetes sense, I started working in this space because I was originally frustrated with my CGM alarms. They did not wake me up at night. I moved from Alabama to Seattle to live by myself. And it was really, really frustrating to not have a safety net. Mm -hmm. Um, and this was 2010. There was no Dexcom share. There was no night scout, no nothing. Um, and I always had this idea of, Oh, if I could get the data off my CGM, I could use my phone, my computer to make this loud alarm system. So I just had this basic logic in my head of if I could get my data, we could do really amazing things. So when I first got the code from John Costick, this was before Night Scout, to create a louder alarm system, as soon as we got it, it was just I always knew the next thing that we needed to do. So it didn't matter that I was not a traditional engineer or traditional programmer. Uh, I partnered with my then boyfriend, now husband, um, to, to build the system actually in terms of the technical infrastructure, but we built the system. Um, and then over the course of the year, we're like, wow, we have this really great algorithm that you know, if we automated it, we could close the loop. Um, and that's kind of the beauty of the story of OpenAPS, the open source artificial pancreas version, is because it was because, you know, John put out that code. It's because this community developed to build what's now known as Night Scout. It's because Ben West spent years working on understanding communication with the Medtronic pumps. And then because Scott and I spent, you know, thousands of hours in a year building this algorithm that we were able to basically build all these pieces together to build this open source system. And that's why the open source system is so important. Yeah. A lot of people know that I am one of the first um, to do this. And I'm a big proponent of 
OpenAPS, but there are you know dozens of people who have made this possible. And that's really, really amazing is it's not a community and it's not just this one person saying, I have this thing that's going to work really well, but it's been tested and vetted and verified. And as of today, it's, you know, middle of May, 2016, we now have 56 plus people who have vetted and verified this code and chosen to build a system for themselves. And that's what I think is really incredible um, because, you know, I didn't have this expectation that all these other people would use it. I first wanted to solve a problem for myself, ladder alarms, and hey, we can automate this thing. This is great. Um, And then I don't want to keep it to myself. I want other people to be able to use it. And then through open source and through this community collaboration and using social media, um, it's been able to get out there so that other people can build it themselves and also have the same outcomes that you know, I experience every night and absolutely love. It, it makes sense, really, because honestly, this is just the RoboCop version of when people help each other with, hey, I think you should move your pre-bolus here. Or I think, you, like, you, you know, like people helping people within the community and and with their thoughts and their knowledge. And then all of a sudden, their thoughts and their knowledge also extend to this new technology. And and then exactly. you've got really, not just really smart person who might know how to tell you, you know, that it's okay to bolus again if your blood sugar is going up, but this is this is this takes a big giant leap. And where do you get the? Is there any fear when you do something like this that I could make something? And I don't, I totally don't mean this in an, in an attacking way, but I'm, I still want to use the words. Like, is there a fear in your mind? Like, I might have made something that would kill somebody, or because I feel like that when I'm like, hey, you should try pre-bolusing. You, you, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, like, what if what if they do it wrong? Like, what if my explanation, which seems completely right to me and obvious and has been working for me for years and years and I know if I was there and I showed it to them it would work great for them what if they bungle it somehow how do you get around that in like today's society so that is so important and that's such a critical um, piece of why we talk about open APS the way we do Um, if you look at anytime I talk about the number of people I do doing it or the language I use, I am always very careful to say 56 people have chosen to test and build their own system. They are building something themselves. And through the process of doing that building, the DIY version, they are testing and validating the code and doing it in a safe way to make sure that it works for them. Mm-hmm. Um, because yes, I have this code that I think works great for me. And everybody always said, oh, but it's just for you. How does it work for everybody else? I can't give this away to anybody. Um, you know, it's an end of one self-experimentation. So if I did try to give it away, I would be regulated by the FDA. Um, and I'm not doing that, obviously. And so this is an open source project. The code and the reference design and the documentation is all out there. Anybody can go build it themselves, but they absolutely have to do the building themselves. And that is because of safety. We need to make sure that anybody who does this expresses intent and shows by working through the process that they know what they're doing and that they are intentionally building a system that, yes, something could go wrong. There's safeguards built in, absolutely, both in terms of hardware and software design. There's hard-coded limits on the pump. There's a lot of reasons why we believe this is safer than standard of care, but somebody still has to do that building process themselves so that they understand what those are. If it breaks at 2 a.m., they know how to fix it. They know whether it's safer to you know fix it or just take it off. Um, All those things are really critically important. And part of how when we switched from data has this closed loop to we're going to do this thing called open APS, that was in a very intentional part of how we started shaping this community. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's in a very, very simplified way. If you make someone build their own car, they would never try to drive it on a lake. They, they, they would go, hey, I, I understand what this car can do and what it can't do. And driving on top of water is not one of them. And so thusly, I will not try. And and then from your position, that is enough because it, that's enough knowledge to know that like somebody, if they could get it to this point, 
they wouldn't, there's no way a reasonable person could get it to this point and then think it would do this thing that it doesn't do or, or they well, shouldn't do. Is that sort of the idea or, I mean, I, I yes and no, I don't want to, I don't want to make this statement that no reasonable person could do that because, you know, if your blood <laughs> sugar ends up at 400 and you're really fr- <laughs> frustrated and it's three o'clock in the morning and, you know, stuff happens, I get that, mm-hmm. but it's, it's very similar to the, the driving on water, um, analogy and, and the point that most people, if they're building this, they spend a lot of time thinking about it. They spend a lot of time thinking about what they do and how they might adjust their behavior and, um, making choices. And yeah. I think what's just really important is for people to be really consciously cognizant of the additional risks as well as the benefits of using this type of system. And that's something we hear all the time, especially when, you know, there's a mainstream media article, they always tend to interview a provider who doesn't necessarily have a patient with open EPS, but they say, look, this is really cool, but I would want to make sure one of my patients really understands the risk and exactly what they're doing. And that's the same thing I feel as Mm -hmm you know, a person with diabetes in this community and as somebody who is kind of helping shepherd this community, which is we want to make sure people absolutely know what they're doing. And so if you look at the documentation, people often have a couple of different reactions. One, wow, this is possible. I can totally do this. No problem. Two, okay, you say it's possible, but I'm not quite sure if I want to do it because it still looks really hard. And three, oh, no way. There's no way I could ever do this. And my answer to that is, first of all, we have both technical people and non-technical people who've gone through and built their own system. It takes varied amount of times, both because some people spend more time testing than others based on their personal comfort level, and that's absolutely okay. And some people, you know, only have an hour here and there to build over time, and some people sit down and do it all in a, a, a nonstop week. So it really depends on that. But the reason the documentation is the way it is, if you look at it, um, is because we do have to make it just hard enough that people have to express that intent and walk through it and build it themselves and and show that they know what they're doing and and do it in phases. Um, And exactly what is the right balance between not making it too crazy hard, but not making it so you press a green button and end up with an artificial pancreas. We're, you know, we're somewhere in that scale, probably leaning a little bit more on the it's hard end. But ultimately, we feel right now that's that's the right thing to do and the best thing we can do uh, to make it possible for more people, but keep everybody as safe as possible. So the people who do build it, um, you know, are going through the process of, of the testing and verifying. That makes a ton of sense. So when we so we say this, build it, build it, build it. What is it we're building? Because like, like, like for instance, like I'm a person who trusts me. I haven't, I haven't looked at anything you have. If I looked at it, I'd be the person going, I can't do that. And, 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 but yet I, let's say I was, I got, I got a wild hair and I was like, I'm going to do this. So I have a daughter on an Omnipod and she's using a Dexcom G5. What is it I'm building? So right now the working system involves an older insulin pump, um, a Medtronic pump. So not an Omnipod. It can use any CGM, so Medtronic CGM, Dexcom G4, Dexcom G5, doesn't matter. And then you have to have a computer to host the algorithm because it's not baked into the pump, and you need a radio communication device. And the standard setup that you most often hear about is a Raspberry Pi is that mini computer, and it needs a battery to power it if you're on the go, and then the Carelink USB stick, which communicates and reads and writes to the Medtronic pump. So that's where most people start, is they look at their existing diabetes equipment and say, great, I've got a working pump, or I've got an Omnipod, or a T-Slim or an animus, I need to decide if it's worthwhile for me to do this. Um, and if so, I need to go hunt down a pump and ask people to check their closets because that's where these older pumps tend to be. Right. Wow. That's amazing. So, so this, so the, the algorithms on the, it's on the stick, it's on the thumb drive. Well, it's on the Raspberry Pi. So that's where the algorithms live. And so what the CareLink stick does is it reads data off the pump 
and data is read from your CGM and it's put on the Raspberry Pi. It runs it through the algorithm and then using the CureLink USB stick, it then sends a recommendation for a temporary basal rate for 30 minutes back to the pump. Ah, so is a lot of how you... It, it is so how much of it like in your in your day to day do you see like how much of it is basal restrictions and and increases and how much of it is bolusing to keep your blood sugar because we don't really talk about it but where where does your average blood sugar sit with, while you're using this um i most often am in the 110s range on average with around 85 to 90% time and range and i very very rarely um maybe once a week end up doing a bolus as a correction if I'm looping the system, by the time I get to anywhere approaching high, and for me, high is you know 150, 160 or above, the system has already been giving me the additional insulin I need to bring me down. So the way it works is if it detects that my blood sugar is rising based on the insulin on board and if it knows about the food that I've eaten because I'll manually input into the system uh, by in- entering carbs into my pump – you know, the system will do the calculation to say, okay, your glide path looks like this. You are going to go above 160, but you're going to hit 165, come back down, end up at 110. So we really don't need to do anything else. Now, if the glide path was just showing me going up, 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 it would say, huh, you need more insulin. We calculate you need this much more than your normal. So it calculates a temporary basal rate that is that much more than my normal for 30 minutes and issues that command. And the reason we use the temp basal commands is because they expire at 30 minutes. Um, it's a lot safer than doing boluses because if it gets stuck in a loop, the amount that you would gradually get by adding a higher temp basal over time uh, is not that much compared to the danger you could get in with a bolus that got stuck on a loop over and over and over again. Um, so by doing that little bit of insulin over time, if, if I go up even faster, it can give me an even higher temporary basal rate. If I plateau, you know, I hit 165 and... I thought I was going to go to one, you know, 200, but all of a sudden I'm flattening out and now I'm predicted to be just fine again. It backs off and it says, oh, okay, I'm going to cancel that temp or I'm now going to issue a lower than, uh, ex- lower than standard temporary basal rate to balance that difference of that extra I just gave you 10 minutes ago. So because it's doing a little bit more and a little bit less, it's very easy to react to new data, whether it's a compression event on the CGM or your blood sugar changes because you hit that, um, that that plateau, for whatever reason, it's able to balance that out. So it's never making those big, big decisions that we as a human make. We're like, oh, it's time for 60 carbs. We're going to do six units. It's never giving that much at once, both in terms of positive insulin or negative reduction. So it's just this little bit of niggling back and forth of a little bit more, a little bit less as needed. And so my system is quite often issuing probably hundreds of temp basils a day. I should go back and count it actually, because it's constantly doing a little bit more, a little bit less as needed. Yeah. How, how, how much time in your life has this freed up like, like day to day, because you're describing how I manage my daughter's blood sugar, except I'm doing it. So do mm-hmm. you, I mean, is it really a situation where you don't think about it nearly as much as you had in the past? So there's, there's two categories. There's the overnight and what I wake up in the morning, which I'm going to talk about first in this, the, the latter. The, the biggest difference to me and the thing that I think about every morning when I wake up is, well, I don't think about diabetes when I wake up anymore. It's huge. I wake up, I used to be like, oh, what is my blood sugar? Oh gosh, I was high. I was low. How did I sleep through those alarms? I feel terrible. What do I need to do? Am I going to eat breakfast? You know, just all this stuff because of whatever happened last night that I couldn't control at all. And I would probably feel really terrible. And it's like starting your day at a negative three when everybody else starts at a zero if they got a good night's rest. Mm -hmm. You feel like you start with a handicap. 
nowadays I wake up and the first thing I think about is never my blood sugar anymore. It's usually three to five minutes in that I'm like, oh, I should see what the loop did last night. And oh, my blood sugar's 90 or my blood sugar's 100 and I've been perfectly flat all night long. Or, huh, I went up to 120 at 3 a.m. And there's people who are going to listen to this and want to punch me in the face. And I get it because I never would have thought that I would have these kinds of overnights. But it's because the system, if it observes a little bit of rise, it's going to give me more insulin and less. So starting the day and I just feel like I have an amazing night of sleep. I feel like an average person where I can start the day and not feel hampered by my blood sugar and the physical feelings from that. So overnight, that is huge. And that drastically changes my attitude and perspective on the day. So during the day, it does take more time in the sense that if I'm going out the door, I need to make sure to have my loop as well as my CGM, my meter, you know, all that kind of stuff. So occasionally I'll spend more time thinking about bringing the equipment with me and making sure it's in range and on. But because it is basically doing that guide rail system where if I'm rising a little bit, it gives me more. If I'm dropping, it gives me less. You know, walking down the street, going to lunch with a friend, working for three hours straight, I'm not having to stop as much and check my blood sugar or see if I need to take action because I know the loop has got it. Sometimes I'll check and just, you know, admire and say, ah, it's doing great. Thanks, loop. Um, But a lot of times I spend significantly less time looking at my diabetes and having to stop and take action. And so that's pretty incredible. And I'm really excited for when, you know, closed loop is available for everybody and diabetes is not so much of hundreds of decisions a day and hundreds of actions a day, but way less. And I think that's going to be a huge improvement to quality of life for everybody from what I've experienced personally with the closed loop. With your, with your rig, um, I'm now in my mind, I'm imagining you with a Radio Shack TRS-80 on your back, but I'm sure it's not like that. Like what's just softball size, tic-tac box, uh, shoe box. Yeah. What are we so a, a Raspberry Pi is um, probably what's, it's, it's like imagining two Blackberries stacked together. Okay. So a little, a little bit big, but not crazy big. Um, the biggest thing tends to be the battery, just because if you want something that's going to run for 12 hours, you need a decent sized battery. Um, but we also have smaller rigs now. So there's been people in the community who have made incredible improvements and allowed us to use something even smaller called an Intel Edison, which is a really small thing that's maybe the size of my freestyle flash meter. It's pretty tiny. Wow. Um, and that with another tiny battery that fits in like a Dexcom carrying case, it's smaller than the Dexcom, so to speak. Um, that clips on my pocket and I am light and free and airy compared to my Raspberry Pi version. So it's really exciting because we started with this big Raspberry Pi, big meaning, oh, sure, it's big, but I was willing to throw it in my backpack or clip it to my pocket because, hey, it's a closed loop. I'm totally going to wear this thing. Um, but now having the option to have something even smaller and lighter, that's probably about the weight as my Dexcom receiver, it's pretty incredible just to, even in the last six months, see the progressions we've made in terms of the technology we can use with it. That's insane. And again, just people in their homes who are connecting through the, through the open API. Oh, my God. Okay, it's time to pay the bills. You ready for an ad? Come on. First, I'm talking to existing Omnipod users. Then I'm going to talk to prospective Omnipod users. First, existing. You guys have got to see this new app that Omnipod has uh, released into the world. You can, you know, obviously contact the company through the app, but that's nothing. View frequently asked questions. Sounds nice. Everybody has that. How about this? View tips from other Omnipodders. That is cool. How about this? How-to videos. And they're handy how-to videos. Not just like, oh, we need to fill the app with something. And you can, if you're a U.S. resident, reorder your supplies right through the app if you buy them from Omnipod. Now, listen. I'm going to put some links in the show notes. 
and you're gonna be able to go right to this. This is available for iOS and Android. It's a great app. I need you to try it out. I need you to put the click on it. You know, I always talk about, it's in the show notes. Do you know how that, what that means? In your iOS app, if you're listening to the podcast app, there's a little picture, like an icon for the, for the, for the podcast, the, the Juicebox podcast. You tap it once and it flips around and all the notes for the show are in there and some of them are links. You just touch them, boom, you're flying around. I'm sure it's similar in that Google app for Android. I don't know, I haven't seen it yet. So links in your show notes. If you're listening online, just scroll down a little bit. It's right there. Okay, now that's for existing Omnipod users. But if you're thinking to yourself, I would like an Omnipod app, but I don't have an Omnipod you can get a free demo pod by going to myomnipod.com forward slash demo. Again, links in the show notes, and you fill out like a, a teeny bit of information. It's like your name and your address. There's no obligation, so whatever, and it's free. And they send you out a free demo pod so that you can try it out and see what you think. Once you decide, hey, I love the Omnipod. There ain't nothing better. And I said ain't. There ain't nothing better than tubal insulin pumping. I don't want to be tethered to things. I want to go swimming this summer. I don't want to have a tube that starts on my hip and goes outside of my pants and up through my shirt and through my bra or my like undergarment and then over my shoulder and around my ear and then all the way back down to my infusion set. I want tubeless. When you make that decision and you get yourself a free demo pod to check it out, then you make your order and get everything going. Boom. You know what you do next? You start enjoying untethered insulin pumping and then you get that app so you can use all the cool stuff on it. I, I can't hold your hand here. You know what to do. Click on the links in the show notes, download the app, take a look. I mean, it's an app, it's free. Just if you don't like it, delete it again, but you're gonna love it. So download it through my link. Do me a favor, support the show. Omnipod has a lot in store as they build the Potter community. No, not Harry Potter with D's, Potter. Okay, I appreciate Omnipod uh, sponsoring the show, but that's enough selling for now. Let's get back to why you're here. Let's get back to Dana and her big brain, which I imagine is so big that it doesn't even fit in her head. It must like bump out in places and I mean, I don't know, maybe she carries a bag with her that half of it goes into. I can't imagine because, wow, right? I mean, I took my insulin pump, I took my glucose monitor and I made it work better in my dining room. Nuts. Uh, but... Cool. Here's a technical question I have for you. Obviously, insulin starts working at different times, you know, for different people, for different situations, for different hydrations. When you're making the initial decision, um, like for you, when you, when you started one day and this was just for you and you say to yourself, I have to tell this algorithm something about this insulin. It goes in now, but it doesn't work till now. And like that to me is... To me, the whole key to how I manage my daughter's diabetes is the understanding of insulin, you know, um, mm -hmm. and and how it works. Uh, if you don't if you don't get that, the rest of it's just a disaster. You, you know, you cannot put insulin in at noon and open your mouth and start eating, and then later go, I can't understand why my blood sugar is high. You, you know, like like I, I took the insulin, and that so random. The amount of time, like just Arden's homesick today, right? So it's like twelve thirty here. And she said to me an hour ago, um, after uh, she, her blood sugar's stuck a little high. And I think, oh, excuse me, there's an alarm that was meant for if Arden was at school today. But, um, but her, her blood sugar was stuck a little high after her breakfast. She's not feeling well. By high, I mean it was like 200. And, I, and she's like, I want a banana. And I was like, okay, so bolus this amount of insulin that I know in my heart should move this blood sugar and get you your banana, except that you're almost at the end of your infusion set. So maybe that's what we're seeing right now. And so to make room for you and I to talk, I said, hey, you know, you're going to have to blow out of here and go to your room for an hour and do whatever you're doing up there. 
She's like, but I still really want this banana, and now I want a clementine. And I was like, okay. I said, so bolus more insulin. And I told her, when your blood sugar gets to 150, by the time it gets to 150, it's going to be dropping. Go ahead and eat then. But that's not the way I would do it tomorrow with a new pump. And that's mm -hmm. not the timing of the insulin I would use on a normal day when things are working correctly. And so when there's that many variables, how do you begin to explain to the algorithm, this is how insulin works? So we do explain to the algorithm, this is how insulin works. We've actually built it around that. So we've mapped out the insulin activity curve, knowing that insulin's going to peak in 60 to 90 minutes. And the only thing you program that's different from person to person is your pump settings that get read in. So it knows your DIA, the duration of insulin activity. It knows your ratios and all of that stuff. So it doesn't matter if it's your period, it's sick day, it's the end of the pump site, um, you're resistant because you had a really high fat meal the day before, all those things that we know can just you know, make you more resistant or sensitive. The loop says, huh, you should be here based on this amount of insulin. We observe you to be riding flat and high or continuing to be rising. We're going to look at this deviation and update the calculation and do something differently as a result. And so we've got a number of things built in, both in terms of our basic algorithm, but also some advanced features that do look at that over time. Um, and sometimes it's a little bit slower than if I was, a, if I knew in my heart of hearts that I'm at day 2.5 in my site and you know, by day 2.75 of my site, it's going to get stubborn. Um, if I know that and I can predict that, I'm, I as a human am obviously going to do something a little bit differently, but it's more often related to the meal boluses. The algorithm doesn't need to know that. It just knows, huh, there's something a little bit different. I'm going to do something differently. And more often than not, when I've observed the algorithm making these kinds of little adjustments that show me, huh, you're a little resistant or a little bit sensitive, it usually does it six to 12 hours sooner than I as a human would observe and or be willing to take action. Because a lot of times we look at it and we're like, well, maybe it's just that one meal. Maybe I'm not really running resistant or I can't remember when I did that pump site. And so you might wait like, oh, let's give it a couple more hours. And by then you're like, oh yeah, I should have done it the first time I thought about it. Well, the loop can, can factor in the, well, you've been running resistant for these hours. And so it's giving you the additional that you need to bring you down. Um, it's not perfect and it's not going to take the place of you knowing that, uh, time to change the pump site or things like that, but it helps a lot from my experience in just taking down some of that burden of realizing that there's something going on. Um, from my experience, the loop has been really great about if I see it constantly giving me high temp after high temp after high temp and I'm writing higher, like if I'm writing flat at 140 or 150, that's not normal for me. I can use that to make a much quicker observation of there is something going on. There's something with my body or my pump site and should I take action or not? Um, so I feel like I have more data and more opportunity to pinpoint those situations when I do need to take manual action. Whereas before it was something that I was very easy to argue myself out of because, you know, ultimately I didn't want to change the pump site or I didn't want to believe that, you know, whatever the moon was, the moon was blue, whatever we're, the reason. We're setting was. a temp basal hours and hours before for something that, that, Oh my gosh, that's so what you're describing is first of all fantastic and and fantastical at the same time. And 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 I also know that there are companies who are going after this same thing at the same time. And so do you have you said you're a very competitive person. Is there something about your algorithm that makes you think like mine's better? Like mine's going to work better? Like I do you have that about you? I know you don't see the other ones and it's it's they're not public yet and you can't see them, but we're talking about something right now that seems very futuristic that I don't think is that far away. I mean, quite obviously, <laughs> you, you've made, you probably made yours at the dining room table, so I'm pretty sure that we're not that far away from, from this being a, something people can buy from 
from a store, you know, like that, that kind of an idea. Um, yeah. What separates, because at some point what separates them? Like, like, you know, when I go to the store and there's like five kinds of chocolate chip cookies, like I know one tastes better to me, but like, how would somebody make that decision one day? Like, like how would someone say, you know, I'm, I'm fairly certain that Dana's algorithm is the one, or I want Omnipod's algorithm. I'm going with Bigfoot. Like, like, how do you, how is that going to work at some point? Can you, do you have any idea of how that'll happen? The whole point of open APS is none of those of, of solutions that you just referenced, and there's many more are available today. So our goal was, I want something today, I can build it for myself for today. Um, you're asking the question about, and, and that's important to note, because people are saying, oh, are you going to, are you going to turn commercial? Are you going to turn to a company? Are you going to patent this? No, that's not the point. The point is to fill the gap today for people who need something today, tonight, to go to sleep safely. Like that is the point of open APS for people who want to build it their own and want to accept that risk. They can do so. You have a special um, brain the- then, Dana. You, 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 <laughs> I, I don't mean to cut you off, but you really do because I, most people would say, if this gap's going to get closed by somebody who's not me 18 months from now, I'll just hunker down and wait 18 months. But you're saying no, I'm going to put my effort in right now, make life better for people in the moment, then I imagine because that's how your brain works, that when the moment comes, you'll just find a new way to improve something or this. Is is that kind well, of how your yeah. life goes? Yeah. And the idea is I am very excited to have, you know, Medtronic is, you know, pitched or the, the way they talk about it is that they're going to, in April, submit to the FDA. That's exciting. All the clinical trials that are happening right now and people at the end of 2017 or 2018, you know, that's exciting. And I'm excited to learn more about what they're doing. Um, I personally, as somebody who's learned a lot through this process, will I would love to be able to compare and say, how do these different devices work for me, Dana, as a person with diabetes, and then make the decision? Is it still worth carrying around my excess gear that I require to close the loop? And the and the pros of that mean I get to customize my algorithm and do it however I want. Or, you know, am I willing to say, Ugh, it, it they're about the same, but with a commercial system, I don't have to carry around all the stuff. I think that's the decision that people are going to make. But I what I love about OpenAPS and the broader we are not waiting movement is it's really shown that with the technology, we can build options for ourselves if we're not happy with the commercial option. And I think that's really powerful because also all the work we're doing, this group of 50 plus people around the world, we're learning a lot about the usability of closed loop. What happens when you exercise? What happens when you shower? What happens when you're sick? What happens when you accidentally over bolus or under bolus or all the human stuff we are going to do with a commercial system or a DIY system. What do our doctors think? How do they deal with the data? There's so much of this real world usability stuff that we're learning that I think is absolutely essential. And we are talking with all of these commercial companies too, to say, look, this is going to be critical to you and your users who buy your commercial product down the road. And so we should all be having this conversation because all of us have the same goal of making life with type one diabetes less of a burden less of a headache, less of a frustration. And I am a huge proponent of any solution, commercial or DIY, that's going to help me or other people do that. And so I want to support an ecosystem where if somebody wants to go and build their own algorithm, they can. And then they can use part of the open APS framework to build a rig and test and decide, does my personal homegrown algorithm or the algorithm that's currently being used by most of the community, which works better for me? And and have the ability to test and do that. Um, but that's one of the things I am also lobbying for with these companies is, you know, it's their black boxes, so to speak. We don't know how the algorithm works, when it takes action, what it's going to do and why. For a lot of people, that's probably fine. They're just happy to, to set it and forget it. Um, but for me, and I suspect for maybe you and other people who have really 
been closely involved in keeping an eye on diabetes all day, every day for years and years and years, it's going to be really hard to be willing to trust this black box and know if it's going to step in, if it's going to do the right thing. So I would love more insight into why the system is doing what it's doing. Um, and with OpenAPS, I built the system so I can see, I know exactly what data it had, why it made a decision. Um, and I can go back, I can do that in real time. I can also go back and see, here's what it did at 3 a.m. when I rose to 120. Here's why I rose to 120 and what it did to bring me back down to 110. Um, I love having that, but that'll be a decision in the future that I make about whether I actually need that if the commercial product is good enough where I don't need to have the insight because it just works like magic. Maybe I'll decide that's great. We'll yeah, see. Yeah. I, I want to I take you in a slightly different direction because this is just keeps popping into my head while you're talking. Pro I, obviously, I'm a not a trustworthy, a tr not a trusting person, I guess. Um, but so what if you woke up tomorrow and some guy started a company making artificial pancreases and you recognized that he was part of the open APS at one point and took basically took your initial idea and tried to monetize it. Like, how do you, uh, I'm going to ask a different question now, because there are times when I've had ideas where I thought if we could bring together a few bloggers in a situation or we could bring together a couple of people, I, I could see where you could be a, um, a bigger help to people. If you were all in one place, if you had people, you know, addressing specialized topics, stuff like that, like, like ideas like that. And then when you start talking about that in the real world, at some point, someone who you think is going to be an, an in, a, just a, a really in, integral part of what you're doing turns out to be a flake. And then you, and they blow it up. And, and I, how do you like, that's, that scared me. Like it scared me off of my idea. And so, but you have to, that's got to be a concern, right? That one person might just decide they want to be like, isn't that just taking your intellectual idea or does open APS just not allow for the idea that this is anybody's? Well, it's, it's all of our code and our delivered documentation, everything is MIT licensed, which means that somebody could go and use it commercially or otherwise. Okay. Uh, they just have to give credit back. Um, and, and we also have prior art. So nobody would go and be able to, you know, patent an idea that is really close to ours because we've established this, this is how it works at basic. But the other thing to realize is if somebody becomes a company, they are working in a totally different space than we in the DIY community doing stuff ourselves because all of a sudden they're a company, they are regulated by the FDA. They cannot do the self-experimentation. So you can, you know, observe the analogies of, you know, the, the Bigfoot story of how they had their own DIY system and they chose to become a company. But now, you know, they're, the, the people who work for that company are not allowed to use that as, you know, a self-experimentation option. They have to wait. They've dedicated themselves to going the commercial route and they're going to have to wait for traditional clinical trials to, you know, to be a part of testing that device on a human. And that's a diff very, very different path. So somebody, you're right, somebody could foreseeably go out and build a uh, company. But the reason we did not go that route, and I doubt anybody else likely will, is because it would be years before that was able to have a solution in trials and in clinical markets that would make it more possible. It slows the process down incredibly. It does. Um, and that's why, you know, I think there's some antagonistic perspective in parts of just the broader community about, you know, why aren't companies moving faster? And I had that for a while, but you know, talking to the FDA, talking to these companies, they've been working on this stuff for years. You know, what what we did with OpenAPS is not new. People have known if you make minute adjustments to your basal rates over time, that's a lot better than just sleeping through the night. No brainer. Um, we were just in the right place at the right time to actually build a sample of this and use social media to connect with other people to build more of it. Um, but that doesn't mean the, 
the companies are doing wrong. Because you also have to think about the perspective that up until recently, the sensors really weren't great enough to do automatic dosing on. Um, the G4 share, the, the new 505 algorithm improvement is really the one where we're kind of like, oh, yeah, this is going to be really great. And that makes a big difference in terms of me personally choosing to automate a system based off of CGM. Uh, but CGM is technically still not licensed for insulin dosing. And some people choose to do that, and that's their prerogative. And some people still do a finger stick every time before they make a decision about dosing insulin. But that there's a lot of stuff like that where there's just the technology wasn't there. The world wasn't there. We weren't ready for it. Um, but I think what we've shown with OpenAPS is we are the technology is there. We as a community are absolutely ready for it. Um, so let's do what we can in terms of working with the companies, providing a solution in the interim that people can build themselves, but also working with FDA to figure out how can we expedite the review of this, what is going to be critical for them to think about as part of the review process. And then also in terms of the implementation, the rollout of these commercial products, the People have a lot of expectations when they think about a closed loop. They think, oh, I'm never going to have to touch my pump ever again. I'm not going to have to meal bolus. I don't have to count carbs. Um, and they, they feel like it's a cure, but it's it's definitely not a cure. And so one of the things that I think is going to be really critical for all of us is to really think about the realities and ask some of the questions you were asking about, which is, yes, you still have to meal bolus. You still have to deal with at day 2.5, your pump site is less great than it was on day one. Um, you still have to calibrate your CGM as as recommended, um, or as you feel best. There's still a lot of that self-management stuff that has to be done. But overall, the volume of decision-making, the frustration, the crazy swings in blood sugars, from my personal experience and observations, tend to be less. And that's amazing. So I want to make sure that people come into this with the right mindset and are equipped to get there sooner and don't spend time being frustrated when they're switching from a pure manual mode to a hybrid mode where they have the system, but they're also still doing some of this bolus. And they just think it's a light switch fix, like like oh, I flipped the switch and now I don't do any of this anymore. And and it's not that. And it and there's also so many other improvements that have to be made. Um, you, you know, like just pump sites in general, like you know how your body reacts to your pump site being in and starts kind of attacking it with white blood cells and things like that at some point. Like all that stuff that needs improvement. The speed that insulin works needs improvement. How long insulin works for needs improvement. You know, the idea of mm -hmm. smart insulin you know, almost in my mind trumps almost all of this conversation because if insulin would work when it needed to work and stopped when it didn't need to do it anymore, that would pretty much be a game changer. You, you know, like, like, and I know that's, yep. you know, that's, that's spaceship talk and things like that. But at the same time, no, I think that's why what you're doing is so amazing because everybody's sort of got a you know, got a piece of this fight and they're fighting it off on their own. Like, it's like you're almost in your own galaxy fighting your fight while someone else is fighting theirs and someone's trying to make smart insulin and someone's trying to make this happen. All this stuff has to happen at the same time. And, and it's just, it's, it's incredible. I mean, as a person who grew up, I don't know how old you are. You look very young in your photo. I think you're probably 15 <laughs> or 18, something like that. But I, um, I'm in my mid forties. So I had an experience in my in my adult lifetime where the internet was a place to get pictures of girls without their top on and and it took 9 hours for that picture to come down. Like you literally once you got to the girl's nose if you thought she wasn't attractive, you had to bail because if not you were giving up quite honestly an hour and a half of your time waiting to get to her chin. And and so that's that was the internet at one point. Like even no one emailed each other. No one no one set up a hashtag we are not waiting and all these amazing people find each other and build this incredible device that you're talking about. Like that didn't exist. Like I've seen that side of 
the world, like in my lifetime, right? And now this is just such a night and day. I mean, it, it really, I probably sound like an old person, but like, it's, it's, it's really astonishing that you're doing what you're doing. Like, what, what did you do before this? Like, why did you, why were you good at this? Like, I could have had this idea and then it would have died in my, my very dull brain because I would not have known what to do with it next. But how did you know what to do next when you had the thought? Well, I think this is, a, this is like I said a little bit earlier, of right time, right place, right people. The technology was there. The social media enabled us to connect. Because again, I didn't start out going to build this closely artificial pancreas. I laugh when I say that because I just wanted louder alarms. I honestly wanted a system that would wake me up. And now I build a system that allows me to sleep every night. It's very ironic. <laughs> but what, what's so cool about this is when we, when we first started doing it, I actually had the idea and talked about it with Scott when we first started dating. And it was six months before John Kostick had tweeted out, like, hey, look, I got my son's blood glucose data on, um, you know, remotely. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's what I want. If he shares his code, this will be great. And we messaged him and said, hey, would you share your code? And he said, yeah. And he shared it with us privately. And that's what created DIYPS, our louder alarm system. And that's what enabled us to then just iterate and say, oh, well, I don't want Scott to get an alarm every time I'm 151. That's stupid. Or 79 all night long. That's really stupid. Cause, and I know there's plenty of people who have the 79, 81, 79, 81, 79, mm. 80 dance where <laughs> you're, you're waking up every 20 minutes for that alarm. That's so frustrating. What I wanted him to know was if I'm below 60 and I have not responded, um, then I want him to call and wake me up. But I want that if this, then that logic applied to the alarms, which is not baked in the devices. So I knew I needed to outsource that logic and put it elsewhere. So once we got the data, then we thought about building the, you know, kind of that logic of if this, then that. And then I needed a way to tell him or to snooze the alarm so that if I did get to it before it alarmed him, it wouldn't alarm him. So we added buttons, what we called snooze buttons. And then, oh, if I'm going to press a button that says I'm doing something, I might as well tell it, bolus, basil, or carbs. Well, if I'm already pressing the button, I might as well tell it how much I'm doing. Wow, the system has all this amazing data. I bet we could run a prediction and actually predict out into the future what the blood sugar is going to be. Wow, we do. Well, if we know what's going to be happening, because what we know about the insulin timing and the carb activity, we can have it make some recommendations so that three o'clock when I wake up and I'm sleepy, it just tells me what to do and I can, that's less math to do. Great. So we got these recommendations. Wow, I've been doing these recommendations for a year. When I follow them, I get great outcomes. When I ignore them, the results are less optimal. It'd be so cool if we could automate it. And that's where we, the, we re-intersected back with the community because at that time, Night Scout had been being created. We were pulling some of our features back into Night Scout. Um, and then through that, we got to know Ben West really well. And he's the one who has spent years working with these diabetes devices to better understand them. And he had been saying, hey, look, I have this way to communicate with the pump. But it was kind of us having that aha moment of, oh, Ben has this way to talk to the pump. We have this algorithm. If we put these two things together, we could build a closed loop. And we then had a closed loop. And then, okay, we're going to make it open source. And so it was always this iterative of let's just do the next thing that makes sense to make diabetes easier, to make that usability experience that much easier. And so I don't know that that's unique to me per se, um, but I think it really was a factor of me having the, we can, we can make a solution work. Like we can figure it out. Plus wanting to leverage the community and build those relationships with the community because that's been the magical part from, you know, start to now, whether it was DIYPS and Night Scout or OpenAPS, is we could not have done this without the community. It would not be possible to be where we are today without the community. And that's just such an important part of this. Um, and that's why I love social media because you know me as the HCSM hashtag person, right? I have been involved with building communities online for 
you know, eight years now. And this is another really integral community that makes magic happen because we can all communicate and gather and share ideas and work together in a non-traditional work structure. You know, we're not a company, we're not a traditional organization, we're not a focus group, we're not a thing, but we are all in it for the same reason of like, let's make life with diabetes a little bit easier. And we have the tools to enable that collaboration. So it's just, it's, it's phenomenal because it, it happened without a recipe, but I think that is a recipe that could be translated to other things. And when we talk about we are not waiting and the we are not waiting hashtag, it's that idea of we have the technology, let's do it today. We shouldn't have to wait for commercial solution. But if you want to wait, if this is not right for you, you totally can. But that's something I think that applies to other disease groups, not just diabetes. Um, Hugo Campos, in terms of getting his data from his cardiac pacemaker, you know, he's not waiting either. And there's so many great stories and examples of this. And I think diabetes, because we're just such a quantifiable disease, because we test our blood sugar or look at our CGM, we've got this data to play with. We've got data in, data out. Um, it really helps us do that. But I think there's a bunch of other different areas that are also going to see broader, we are not waiting movements and initiatives and projects that come out of the community now that they've seen what's possible. And that's really one of my hopes. That's amazing. I I, I wanted to ask you a second ago, you were, you were talking about like the idea of um, predictive data. And every time I've interviewed a number of people from Dexcom here and they're great. I always really enjoy the conversations. It's fun to hear what they, what they've got coming up and stuff like that. But I try to push them every time about that. I'm like, I know, like, I don't listen, Danny, what I know about what you do fits in a thimble. Okay. So, but I do know from seeing people's, you know, posts online that, that people in Night Scout, for instance, their Dexcom sensors are telling them where they think their blood sugar is going to go. So that information is quite obviously coming out of that sensor. And we don't see it as, as you know, um, end users of a, of a Dexcom product. And I always ask them, like, when are you going to, like, when? Like, let me see that. That would be really helpful. And I do believe they're getting very close to that being part of the package based on the conversations I'm having with them. But my question is this to you. After you've seen oh, it does this, let's do this. Oh my God, it does this, let's do this. And no one, uh, no one drops dead after you make these decisions and you move forward and you use this extra. What do you think holds them back? Because you've had your toe in the water, like you've had to have conversations with the FDA, I know from uh, somewhere else I've heard you interviewed with. What do you think is stopping, what do you think is stopping the industry from charging forward the way you guys are able to? And do you see any danger with how you're doing it? Because I don't. So a couple questions there. I think the industry is charging forward, but it's just it's very slow compared to what we would like because we are the ones every single night going to bed and, you know, looking at our child and saying, oh, I hope I, you know, I hope their activity doesn't kick in or, you know, I ran a marathon three days ago. I hope the lows are finally done or whatever. You know, we, we face that every night. It's so real and such a big deal to us mm -hmm. that another year feels like eons. But in the scope of technology development, another year of clinical trials is we're all, almost there in terms of the commercial options being out there. So I do feel like they are charging faster. I do think that the FDA is super aware, especially with the open APS community conversations, you know, about the need for the for this. And I'm hoping that open APS has been demonstrating that, yes, you might still occasionally have a higher low, but you cut out 10 highs and 12 lows. And so this is safer overall. Right. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that helps move it faster, but I do feel like everybody is moving as quickly as possible. So I actually feel pretty good about that, but I acknowledge that I also have a closed loop that I use every night. And so I'm a little bit less frustrated because 
I've, I've already filled that gap for myself. So I acknowledge that. I, I almost asked you the question just so you could answer it like that, because I do know how frustrating it is for other people. And I do also think that those companies are charging forward as, as fast as they can. And, and it, and it does feel like they're not, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's if your house is on fire and and, nine, and you call nine one one, and three minutes later the fire department gets there. There's something in your brain's going to wonder why they didn't get there in two minutes. You, you, you know, like right. like you know, why is this not happening faster? And, and I get that. And at the same time, I sometimes feel like I sound like an apologist for people I have no connection to. So it was nice to hear you say it. Is what. I, <laughs> <laughs> is, is. Well, it's it's yeah, it's interesting, and I I get asked all the time, and I want you know people in these industries to know we are not bashing them. They they built really great products, which enabled me to do this thing on my own. Mm-hmm. I want them to keep building really great products and continue with their innovation pipeline. Um, I do think there's things they can do in terms of using some of our research and our data and our insights about usability, and we're talking to them about that. Um, so I, I see progress in all fronts, and I just know that to a lot of people, it feels really slow, and I totally get that. I was going to ask you, like, because I think we've been talking for 45 minutes now. How do you sustain yourself? This sounds like a full-time job. And at the same, like, you'll say things like we're talking to these people in industry, but at the same time, you're not making money with the open APS. So are you, like, you're you're not just like Gandhi, right? Like, so, like, you have to stay alive and, and you're not being sustained by prayer, I imagine, or anything like that. So how do you, what is your nine to five job and how do you fit all this in? I do have a nine to five job, as does Scott. Um, so we, we work in totally unrelated fields. He's a network engineer for a startup, and I work for a healthcare communications company. And I work with an analytics team that specializes in helping companies connect with online communities. So it's kind of the perfect sweet spot of my analytical brain, but understanding the online space and then helping doctors and patients and organizations all talk together. So I love the space and I am lucky enough to have a job that is very flexible and supports what I do in my spare time, which means open APS stuff on my lunch break or nights and weekends and that kind of thing. So I, I, I probably have a little bit more of a fluid situation than most people, but I definitely do. We, Scott and I, I don't think people understand that we spend hours a day, you know, talking with people and troubleshooting or building new code or fixing documentation or building a new release or talking to people online or, you know, doing podcasts like this in our spare time. Um, we have dedicated a lot of time to that and I absolutely would not change a thing for it, but it is kind of almost like a second full-time job just in terms of the number of hours we put into it. Yeah. I would say to people, to the subscribers of the show, like people who listen every week, like this is just another example. Like Dana is no different than what will probably end up just being the episode right before this, where there's a lovely woman named Sam who helps people do their um, their insurance denial um, requests. Like like she just helps them go back again and appeal and appeal and appeal all in her free time just to help people because she did it for herself, found she was good at it, and then just had this feeling like I can't like just keep this to myself. You, you know, like, like how would I do that? And it's just a, such a great example of how living with diabetes and once you really feel it and you feel like you have something to add back into the community, it just, you you have to almost like, I I don't, you have to give back. It's not, there's no other choice. You can't just take something, you know, and sit on it when you know how other people are, are living and could use it. It's exactly, it really is cool. Like you're, you're very cool. I, um, so we've (laughs) talked about Scott a couple of times and not really talked about him. So I'm going to interview Scott next week. And we're going to do Excellent. these together uh, somehow. I don't know how exactly. I my brain doesn't work like yours. I'll literally know when. Um, but 
but but so you you have a boyfriend at some point in your life named Scott, and you got and now you have a husband, same guy, I'm assuming. Yes. How old were you when you were diagnosed? I was 14 when I was diagnosed with type one. Three okay. months into high school. Three months into high school, and then you meet Scott. How old are you guys then? Oh dear. <laughs> I was 24, so I'd had diabetes for about 10 years. Okay, and then this guy comes into your life, does not have any life with diabetes going on? Does not have any idea about diabetes, and his first real exposure is when on our first date, which was five hours along because we talk a lot, um, I made the decision to pull out my pump so he could see me bolus and give him an opportunity to ask questions and bring diabetes into the conversation. Do you think you loved her a little bit when you got there that day? It wasn't very long after that that I realized I loved her. So it was quite possible that I did a little bit. You're not going to want to miss the next episode of the Juicebox podcast, the one right after this one, episode 64, where I talk to Scott, Dana's husband. We talk about different topics surrounding open APS, and you'll hear a, a little more about their first date from his perspective. Yeah, so, make sure he's not a, a, a stiff, right? You, you didn't want to, yeah. if, he, if he backs up on that pump, you're like, oh, geez, these five hours are wasted. I got to get rid of this guy. And so, okay, so Scott doesn't back up. He comes forward. He asks questions. I'm assuming you guys get married. It's all very lovely. And and then you turn to him one day and say, like, look what I'm doing. I'm going to make these loud alarms for my, my can you oh, help? No, no? You, you jumped forward. So we met. He learns about diabetes and, and he has this engineering brain too. So he asks lots of questions like, why doesn't the data from the CGM go to the pump? Wait, mm -hmm. you have to do that math and then go put that calculation into the pump. Um, and all the questions that anybody with, the, with a grain of sense looks at these devices and says, if they're not you know, exposed to the medical technology being 10 years behind deal. And he's like, that's really frustrating. We should fix it. I'm like, yes, but we can't because we don't have the data. We don't have the tools to do that. And so it was a couple months where we would talk about it off and on. And hey, this is the idea for the program that I've had for years and years and years. If only we could get the data. And then about six months after we started dating, that's when we discovered John Kostick's tweet, got the code. And then together while we were dating is when we went off and built this first louder alarm system, um, ultimately closed the loop and then got engaged, got married wearing the closed loop. Um, and so it's been just a very fast sequence of events wow. in terms of that being a part of what we've done together. Um, as he got to know me, he got to know diabetes really, really well. Um, and it's also interesting to talk about in terms of our previous topic of conversation in terms of giving back. I've felt very much like giving back to the diabetes community since I started just because I get so much out of it. That support is just immeasurable, but it's been fascinating to see me see him not only get up to speed with diabetes, but also immerse himself in the diabetes community and him choose also to do that selfless giving and spend a lot of his time doing that, which I, you know, he doesn't have diabetes. He doesn't have to do that, but he's what we call like you a type three, you know, this amazing person who loves somebody with diabetes. And it's just so heartwarming on another level to see people like him, like you, like my parents and, you know, my f family and friends be involved in that degree because it helps us people with diabetes a lot. Uh, that's so cool. Like, yeah, look at you. And his name's Scott too. So obviously, yeah, yeah that's what it all, I, there are a lot of guys named Scott in the diabetes community, actually. I'm sure there's a lot of guys named Jim in the diabetes community too, but I'm just more aware of the Scots apparently. Um, <laughs> what, we, so, okay. So my, my, I'm going to let you go cause I can't keep you too long cause you have a life. And, um, w but I want to know like, where do you go from here? Like what's, next for you? What are you working on? What are you looking forward to accomplishing? So people always say like, what is the goal with open APS? And we don't have a goal. You know, we're not an organization. We don't have a mission. My personal mission is just, I obviously want to keep a closed loop in my life because it's helped me 
a, a very big amount, and I want to make this type of technology more possible. So like our iterative design where we saw the thing and we knew that's what we do next, that's kind of how we're operating. We see new features to build into the system. We see ways to prove the documentation. We see opportunities to engage with the companies directly as well as with the FDA. Um, we are presenting a poster at ADA scientific sessions in June in New Orleans. So that's going to be really big to bring some data from the community um, to the scientific community. So that's probably the big next thing. Um, but we'll just keep trucking in terms of helping people get up on the system and answering lots and lots of questions about this and seeing what else is possible. Wow. Jeez. Well, I want to thank you, even though I do not use your system or believe that I am smart enough that in any way I could build it. I still think that what you're doing is pushing the industry. And, and for that alone, I would thank you. But for being such a, a wonderful part of the community, I would want to thank you too. I mean, that's really what, what you're doing is it's just it's countless hours, I, I would imagine we're into countless months, not, you know, but we should probably start counting, you know, by months, not hours of your of your effort. And, <laughs> and while it is helping you, it is helping so many other people. And I don't know that there's there's no entity in place to say thank you. So even though I am not the person who should be thanking you, I'm just going to do it because someone should. So congratulations. I would clap, actually, but it would seem odd. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And I, will, I say thank you not just on behalf of myself, but also there's a community of amazing developers and people. Ben West, like I mentioned, and many, many other people who have contributed to this. And this broader We Are Not Waiting community, whether it's Nate Scout or a bunch of other tools. And so I just... I. I pass on the thing. I will pass on the things to them. Yeah, I appreciate you. that. The Beca amazing work. Because I'll tell you, because I talked to John Costick in the past on the podcast and privately and everything. And then once he's on, I get like a thousand emails like, well, you, what about this guy that does this and this guy? I said, look, this isn't a Night Scout podcast. You know, I was like, you guys need your own podcast if you want to talk to everybody. There's like a thousand people involved, you, you know, but I, I'm just trying to get the broader idea out there. But I don't want it to get lost that there are so many hands in this that are, are so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, without them, it doesn't move forward. Without them, it falls apart, that kind of thing. But I don't know how to, you know, uh, you guys are going to have to come up with your own Mount Rushmore or something like that. Um, but but, <laughs> but, it's, but at some point, too, is there a place where, like, here's a great way to end. Like, if I, if I want to take my stab at building this, wh where do I start? Where do I find you or the code or step one at? So step one is go to openaps.org. It explains pretty clearly, um, you know, what it is and what you need. And it links to the documentation, but it also has the reference design in English, which is a great place to start. And it says, here is how the algorithm works in English. And if you say, yeah, that sounds great. That's like what I do. And I would love to automate it. Then open APS is something to explore. And so diving into the documentation and looking at the hardware requirements and looking at just the overall steps to build it is the next place to go. And this there's FAQs, there's links to how to find the community where our Gitter chat channel is, great place for technical questions. Um, and then in terms of seeing stories, learning more just in general about how people use it, I would check out on Twitter, the OpenAPS hashtag. I tweet to it quite frequently, but a lot of people from the community share their stories about waking up or sending their child to school with it. Um, and it really gives you kind of a bigger picture. So I would say go to openaps.org, but also look on Twitter, hashtag OpenAPS um, to kind of see more stories and color from the community. Dana, you are clearly not a person who 25 years ago would have wasted your time with your dial-up modem looking for tawdry photos on the on the in internet as I did. You obviously see tools in front of you and do way better things with them than I did. Uh, I you you are a much better person. That that is, and take this from me, please. Yeah, I anyone who's listening for the last hour is got to be bowled over with just the intelligence that's that's that is obviously in your head because I, I just. 
while you're talking, I thought, I thought if I was a pilgrim, I'd live four miles from Plymouth Rock right now. That's that's what, that's what I kept thinking. Like society would like would have we would have landed at Plymouth Rock if that even happened. This is my specious understanding of history. And then I would have walked forward till I hit a lake, and I would have been like, "That's it. We can't go any further. Here's here." And then, then I just know that about myself. And it's very cool that there are people like you in the world. I mean, even with your husband. You know, when you say with an engineer's brain, he looks at something and wonders, why doesn't this do this? We could make it do this. My brain goes, why doesn't it do this? And then I go, and I bang my head against the table, and then nothing happens after that. So you're, I, I am in awe. I'm, I'm bowing with my hands. So you guys are, you rock. It's really amazing. And tell Scott, please, I, look, I genuinely look forward to, uh, to talking to him. If he should cancel, I'll know you did not have a good time on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I will appreciate the thanks and the compliments, and I will definitely, um, I'm sure he's looking forward to talking to you as well. Okay, there's no teasing you. That episode with Scott is up right now. If you're a subscriber, it's probably already in your um, in your app. And if you're not, why are you not subscribing? Come on, subscribe. Push the subscribe button. Listen, hear that? It's me pushing the subscribe button. Now you do it. You make the noise. Thank you very much to Omnipod, not only for sponsoring the Juicebox podcast, but for making that fantastic app, which again, you're going to click on the show notes and go look at. Get your free demo pod today at myomnipod.com forward slash demo or with your links in the show notes. Let's end today with basil snoring, shall we? All right, moving the mic around. Hold on. Can you hear that? Right, one more. What a delight he is, huh?